You're listening to the Nightlight Radio Network. This is Dr. Zohara Hieronymus, co-host of 21st Century Radio. We are happy to present this rebroadcast of our show on Nightlight. Enjoy. Joining us this hour is a very well-known farmer and farming educator, Joel Salatin whose 500-acre polyface farm was prominently featured in the 2006 Omnivore's Dilemma by Michael Pollan, as well as in the documentaries you may have seen called Food, Inc. and Fresh. He has authored nine books, including You Can Farm and Salad Bar Beef, and the Center Street release in 2011 that I was reading over the weekend, Folks, This Ain't Normal. Called a polyface farmer, which we'll find out about, Joel was introduced to us by Acres USA publisher Fred Walters, whose father Charlie and I used to share the airwaves together. Joel is a regular contributor to their excellent magazine, Acres USA, as well as for the Stockman Grass Farmer and Mother Earth News, focused as our most smart-thinking people we interview in the food business. He is focused on decentralizing the food system and encouraging local farms and local consumers to buy and produce food locally. To that end, Salatin has proven it works. He raises livestock using holistic management methods of animal husbandry, free of harmful chemicals, and meat from the farm is sold by direct marketing to consumers and restaurants. Logically, it is becoming the best strategy for sustainable, regenerative, and lower-costing food production, land enrichment, and ecological balance for all. Thank you so much for joining us, Joel. Thank you, Zora. It's great to be with you. I love that you call yourself, I have to just read the quote, a Christian, libertarian, environmentalist, capitalist, lunatic farmer. And does that leave any major theme out? Well, I hope not. The whole idea is to uh, break down some of these stereotypes and, uh, and, and, and encourage, uh, encourage discussion rather than the hardening of the categories. Exactly. Exactly. So, so tell us first to begin with, what, what does it mean when you say you're a polyface farm? Well, we... We uh, pick poly. It's, of course, uh, the Greek prefix for, or the Latin prefix for many, you know, polygons, polycided, poly everything. Uh, and so uh, poly faces is a farm of many faces. And we knew that we would have a lot of species, plants and animals, a lot of enterprises. And frankly, uh, we always envisioned a farm with a lot of people faces uh, repopulating the countryside. So we had a lot of aspects to faces. You know, some people, when they hear about your extraordinary accomplishment, 550-acre farm, you've built it into a two-point-some million-dollar business. It's extraordinary. You grew up on a farm. How did how the way you grew up not only affect your decision to continue, but how did you alter what you learned to what you do today? Well, the beautiful thing is that uh, my dad was a, was a genius uh, you know how the older you get, the smarter your parents were. Right, exactly. <laughs> and, and and so uh, we said, you know, he was he was organic before Rachel Carson wrote Silent Spring. And actually, his father, my grandfather, was a charter subscriber to uh, Rodale's Organic Gardening and Farming magazine in what 1949. And so my grandfather um, had this, you know, he had compost piles. He had. He had an octagonal chicken uh, coop, and the chickens ran through the garden. He patented the very first uh, walking garden sprinkler, you know, that rolls up a garden hose that walks through. Yeah. And he had this wonderful, you know, my earliest childhood memories of going up there to his place. Um, where to, he, he had a huge, uh, probably, you know, 
a quarter-acre garden, which is a really big garden, and it was surrounded on two sides with uh, tea top tea trellis uh, grapevines, Concord grapes. And being a child, you know, they would hang down. I could just jump up and reach these dripping grapes and, and just this, this, this sense of abundance, you know, mm-hmm. just being nested in abundance. Uh, the older I've gotten, the more, the more I've realized how subconsciously that was affecting my, my idea of life, to be able to walk out a back door and just, and just be enveloped in abundance. And so, uh, so when we came, Mom and Dad bought this farm in 1961, worked off the farm, you know, the town job to pay for it. And so, you know, by the time I was out of high school and, and looking, uh, I, you know, I loved the farm and, and from my earliest, you know, memories wanted to be here, but we couldn't figure out how to make the, the money work. You know how that goes. Yeah. And uh, how, do you, how do you make this thing work? And so we always milked a couple of Guernsey cows, and, and uh, Dad, being, Dad was an accountant and a trained economist, and he realized very early on that you couldn't do the chemical approach and the, and the, the off-farm, you know, input, whatever. The, I, I call it a, you know, a sophisticated agriculture drug addiction. Um, you had to rely on, on solar energy. Uh, you had to have higher margins by direct marketing, and, and he got all this. So I had this wonderful foundation, and, um, and so, you know, when, when it came time for me to kind of make these decisions, uh, I just basically took Dad's philosophy that, that he hadn't been able to do because because of having to pay for the farm and losing a farm in Venezuela and starting over later in life and all that. Right. And so Teresa and I were able to get this, this piece of raw land with an excellent, excellent, you know, ecological, economic uh, philosophy behind us and then, you know, and run. So I, I stand on shoulders of, of great people. That's a beautiful um, legacy. And as you point out, you have four generations living on your farm now. Yes, my mom is still a very active, uh, she'll be 93 in December. She still drives, dances, sings, and, and, um, and if you go shopping with her, prepare to be exhausted. How so. interesting. <laughs> it's lovely. You know, one of the things that your, your book covers so many areas, and we won't be able to cover them all, but maybe some of the bigger chunks. And one of them, of course, that you're so right to talk about is the increasing regulatory approach that's taken by the U.S. government towards farming and how much it is getting in the way of not only creativity but opportunity. Well, yes, and, and um, you know, the part of that story is, as I was, as I was saying, you know, through, through high school, um, we sold at a curb market, which was a precursor to today's farmer's markets. There mm-hmm. was one here in Stanton. It was started during the Depression. And uh, my, in its heyday, it had like 60 vendors because farmers were, they were food rich but cash poor. Right. And, of course, the city needed food. And so uh, this, this curb market was started in the, in the Depression era and to, to provide a venue for farmers to direct market. And uh, we had a thriving one. Well, by the time I came along as a, as a young teenager in the late 60s, uh, it had dwindled down to two elderly matrons, but it was still functioning. One of them did uh, bake, bakery, um, baked goods, pastries, and the other one was a more kind of a, what we'd call a, an old-style, resilient, you know, farmstead, a big garden, um, cured, you know, cured hams and, and that sort of thing. And then we came, and then I came on, I had my chickens and eggs and things, that was the main thing. 
and then I added a garden later, and then we actually were able to, to dress beef in the field, uh, field dress beef, and sell you know big round steaks. And uh, we and we had these two Guernsey milk cows. We sold we could sell everything but raw milk. So we made cottage cheese, butter, buttermilk, um, uh, all these things. And so my first farm plan was to just milk ten cows. You know, I was strong. I enjoyed it. I could milk ten cows by hand. And sell the milk to neighbors at supermarket prices. Not or this is you know, this is early 70s. Okay, mm-hmm. this is before organics. I mean, it's you know it's it's uh, we we're still in Vietnam, right? Right. And and so I, I said, well, you know, I don't mind milking 10 cows. It take a couple hours. Um, I can do that and just sell the milk at at to neighbors that were buying my eggs at the time. There was only one problem. It was illegal, and I've never. I've never gotten over it. I've, you know, I don't, I don't dwell on it every night, but I've never gotten over the fact that that this regulatory climate not only kept my neighbors from enjoying much better milk, it kept me from being able to get back to the farm as soon as I wanted to, and, and kept our entire farm, you know, land healing process uh, from occurring as early as it could have, and that, and that same hurdle that same story can be repeated you know all over the world by the by the hundreds of thousands of farmers entrepreneurs ready to access their community with kefir with with pot pies with with um you know all sorts of value-added product because the the single biggest growth area right now in the food movement is high quality convenience right you know 30 years ago we we pioneers we hoped that by now everybody would be uh, in their kitchens and would learn how to uh, cut up a chicken and uh, and cook parsnips and you know and and be uh, whatever canning dehydrating and and fruit leathering and whatever. Well, as it turns out, yeah, some have, but by and large, that next leap past uh, connecting to your local food has not happened. Mm-hmm. And the next leap is, well, around here we joke, you know, the farm is polyface. We say what people really want is polyface hot pockets. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and it's very true. You know, even at the high end of the culinary art scene, there's these discussions of high end, very high end, like dining menus, you know, seated menus, carry out. And um, so it is interesting. I want to come back for a moment, though, to cows, because this is a topic I've discussed over the decades from all different angles with all different people. Some people say we can't eat meat. We have to stop eating meat. We're destroying, you know, the topsoil because of the cows. The cows are producing too much methane. And I read in your book that you said methane, folks, ain't coming from the cows. You said it's hardly on a scale of anything meaningful in comparison to the methane from the world's wetlands. I, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm ignorant. I have never heard somebody claim this to this degree, Joel. So tell us about it. Well, the truth is that when, when um, material decays in an anaerobic environment, anaerobic being, of course, without oxygen, when, when biomass decays in an anaerobic environment, it does give off methane, and vegetation gives off the same methane whether it decomposes in the digestive tract of a cow or whether it decomposes in a swamp or decomposes through an earthworm. And so um, the beauty is, of course, that plants inhale methane. That's, 
you know, this is not a one a, a one sided, you know, a one direction deal. Right. Uh, it goes both directions, and so the plants inhale all these gases, uh, and and that's part of the plant cycle, and so. Uh, so the, the world's wetlands, actually, the swamps and the wetlands, actually generate um, some some ninety percent. I think is the is the figure that's most common wow. um, of of the world of the of the methane of the planetary methane produced. And of course, they also they also uh, ingest a lot of mm-hmm. it as well. Mm-hmm. But when people talk about you know cows destroying the planet and all this, um, uh, you know, with methane. The cows, the cows are, are are just a minuscule part of the methane produced. Uh, most of it is coming from actually uh, anaerobically decaying marshes and wetlands, and, and, and have, all the you know the, cat, the, the cattails and the and yeah. the you know the willows and the prolific bulrushes growing in those areas. Well, um, has the wetlands increased? I mean, because of the style of monoculture, agriculture, runoff, et cetera? No, no. Wet, wetlands have actually uh, decreased in many areas, and that's one of the reasons why we have all sorts of uh, policies right now in the U.S. to preserve wetlands and and not, you know, many of them have been drained. Right. Uh, and so, yeah, we actually have a lot fewer wetlands than we have. The the, the thing you have to understand about this whole uh, atmospheric carbon discussion, the car- from carbon dioxide to methane to whatever. Right. Um, the whole. Uh, uh, carbon sequestration now, now issue. Car- uh-huh. You have to understand is that um, the, the the single biggest thing that that drives that forward is when carbon moves out of the soil into the atmosphere. Uh, so you know, 500 years ago, the United States averaged over eight percent organic matter in its soil. Today. We average one percent or less. Wow! When you add up the number of, of gigatons, the gigatons, the millions of, of these tons of carbon that moved out of the soil into the atmosphere, it's amazing. Australia in 1820, Australia um, averaged almost 20 percent organic matter. Today, Australia averages less than one percent. Mm-hmm. This has happened all over the world especially where tillage, uh, planting annuals, has become the, you know, the modus operandi. Yeah. And so how we build soil, how nature builds soil, and the reason the healthiest soils on the planet are in these places is with perennial grasses, which are more efficient at converting solar energy into biomass than trees or bushes and shrubs, mm-hmm. grasses, so you have herbivores, you have herbivores and, and of course, you know, both two-legged and four-legged uh, predation to move them around, as well as seasons and, and, and you know, and uh, dry seasons and warm seasons, cold seasons and hot seasons, fly cycles, uh, all that sort of thing. There, there's a migratory choreography, as we know, in these primitive uh, herds. But we, what we have done is we have, we have taken the herbivore out of its, historically historical ecological niche as a pruner as an encourager of new growth we've taken it out of that and segregated rather than integrated so we've locked the herbivore into a feedlot 
fed it annual grains that require tillage and chemicals to grow. I mean, it doesn't require mm-hmm. chemicals, mm-hmm. but that's but what it's used, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and so we've taken this beautiful symbiotic choreography, and we've, we've segregated it into a into a uh, a degenerative yeah we've broke we've broken that symbiotic cycle and and neither side wins instead of both sides winning yeah exactly you know i um another guest of ours in fact later in the program is mark shepherd who i know you know who's written this beautiful work called restoration agriculture sure. mm-hmm. and as a another acres usa wonderment um you yeah. know he'll talk some about that that when we move to this annual seed culture and away from the perennials um that no civilization has who has done that has ever survived and you know i never i feel like i'm really stupid tonight it's like i've learned so much and it's like i have literally been part of the um you know the ecological back to the earth organic integrative systems for all my life it, I, as an advocate primarily though i do have a small organic garden of my own to really sort of learn what it takes that was how i started was the question was what would it take to feed ourselves and i discovered a lot of work <laughs> And chickens that we could protect from the uh, fox somehow. But um, he's going to also further that discussion. We need to take a break, and then we'll come back and talk some more about not only, as you point out, the herbivores like the cattle, but the bison, the buffalo, did this for thousands of years on our continent. And when we went about massacring the buffalo as a method of genocide of the red man, so to speak, we really began the whole awful cycle of not only monoculture planting, which the government supports, but also destroying our topsoil nationwide. If you're just joining us, Joel Salatin is with us. He is a polyface farmer. He's written many, many books. He also teaches this beautiful thing called the Salatin Semester. Go to www.salatin, S-A-L-A-T-I-N, semester.com, and www.polyfacefarms.com, and, of course, acresusa.com. Hi, this is Stephanie C., media coordinator with Buffalo Field Campaign. You can learn more about us and our work to protect America's last wild buffalo at buffalofieldcampaign.org. And you're listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Zahara Hieronymus. Farmer, educator, maverick, demonstrator. I like that. Joel Salatin. You can learn more about his work. Be a student. Maybe become an intern. www.salatinsalatinsemester.com and www.polyfacefarms.com. One of his books that I've been enjoying over the weekend is entitled, Folks, This Ain't Normal, A Farmer's Advice for Happier Hands, Healthy People for a Better World, and it's a Center Street 2011 release. One of the main things, Joel, that you um, basically are sharing and urging everybody to think about is the Jeffersonian farmer and the foundation of this country was really based on households who farmed and grew their own food. And we have moved so far away from it that some people say, look, you know, Joel and guys like that are just dreaming. He's like trying to reach back in time. Talk to us about your vision, though, that it's not about reaching back anywhere. It's about moving forward into very difficult, challenging climate change environments, limited resources, and issues of real food scarcity if we don't wake up. Oh, well, that's uh, that's quite a mouthful. <laughs> but uh yeah, in, in general, uh, I'm I'm definitely not reaching uh, back. Uh, I'm I'm reaching forward. 
the Jeffersonian intellectual agrarian uh, was certainly a you know a a, a center a foundational point for the founding of our country. We were an agrarian culture at one time, and I'm not trying to go back to an agrarian culture, but you can't finally you can't pull up your roots, uh, and no civilization has ever been successful when it uh, when it destroys its farmers or destroys its its resource base. And and the truth is, you can join Nature Conservancy, Sierra Club, Audubon Society, you know, name any of these big environmental groups you want to, and they and and you can. You can argue how much they really affect the resource base, but the, if you really want to affect the resource base, you have to deal with the farmers, right? Because the farmers are 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 the first, you know, they're the first uh, uh, level stewards on ninety percent of the land base, our air, soil, and water, and uh, and eventually, no civilization is ever healthier than the health of its air, soil, and water. You can't eat. You can't eat Wall Street stocks. You, yeah, right. They don't taste very good. And um, and so if we don't preserve our air, soil, and water, uh, then the civilization collapses. And, of course, we've seen that throughout history many, many times. So I think that, um, that it behooves us all to answer the question, well, how can I, how can I make sure that there is uh, regenerating, not just sticking our finger in the dike, but how can we grow more soil? How can we purify the air? How can we hydrate the landscape, not just hold things where they are, but how can we actually make our air, soil, and water even better for our grandchildren? Mm-hmm. That, should be, that should be a vision for everybody. Yeah, I agree with you, and I love the notion of plant, planting fruit trees and nut trees all over the country. I mean, planting trees is an obvious answer, so why not produce why not plant trees that produce food? One of the things you write about, and a lot of people don't really give much thought to it, because in this country we like cemetery-grade lawns, but grass is really a gift that most don't know anything about. And I love that you commented in your book that in the Laura Ingle book days of Little House on the Prairie and those, if you could walk 12 feet from your house and be lost in the grass. And this summer I did a little experiment, two of our beds in our in our garden, I decided to just let go and see what happened. And what grew in it is grasses that are five and six feet tall. Yes. Uh, uh, amazing. Yes. When, when, yeah. That is one of the biggest, um, whatever, uh, misperceptions or misunderstandings. When I talk about grass, most people, their only association with grass is on a football field, a golf course, or a lawn. Right. And, and when I say grass, I'm thinking these these primal grasses, you know, the the elephants on the Serengeti, and and these these tall grasses uh, that Laura Ingalls Wilder's family encountered, you know, that were eight and ten feet tall, um, just just massive. It it behooves us all, I think, to appreciate that 500 years ago there was actually more nutrition produced in what is today the United States. There was more nutrition produced 500 years ago than there is today, even with gardens, hybrid seeds, John Deere tractors, and, and chemical fertilizers. Mm-hmm. There, were, there, were, there were millions, uh, um, hundreds of millions of, of bison, over a million wolves that needed 25 pounds of meat a day. Uh, there were over a million beavers. Eight percent of the landscape was, was uh, beaver ponds, you know, uh, uh, even, even in the arid southwest. 
a massive beaver pond. And so, you know, when you think of this, uh, if you if you go and look at at early uh, times, uh, even even as late even as recent as 1900, I was I've done several speaking engagements in the Southwest, and it's amazing. You talk to the old people there, and and you, you go on to a oh, I don't know a hundred thousand acre ranch, for example, and in 1900, it supported ten times mm-hmm. as many cows as it does today. And and there were you know the the grass was lush. I mean I just was in I've been in Australia nine times, and I just was with a guy that was uh, negotiating purchasing a, a large ranch down there. And he actually the, the ranch had been in his family since you know the early 1800s, and so they had the ranch records from day one all the way up to day. And you could just see mm-hmm. uh, you know 1840 it supported I don't know whatever 50,000 cows. By 1880, it was down to 30,000. By 1920, it was down to 20,000. Today, it's down to less than 10,000, and and they're having to drop to 5,000. That's a steadily a, a steady regression, and yet and yet that landscape, that landscape, in its in its in its primal state, with this uh, choreography of of these migratory uh, flocks of birds, migratory flocks of herbivores. Um, in its natural state, it was it was substantially more productive, and that's the same way it is here in in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And so, so that that's why on our farm we come to every question and or every you know, every problem. What's every problem? And we ask the question: Well, well, what would nature do? What, what was this? What was this original design? How did this work? You know, before we had, and it, it's not going back to hoop skirts and hearth cooking, and it's not about going back, but it is about recognizing the t- the templates and the patterns. So today we don't have wolves and we don't have bison, but we have cows and, and we don't have fire. If you start a fire, the, you know, the the little red engine comes out and puts it out, right? And so so we don't have that either, which helped to move and 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 do amazing things ecologically. But we do have. Space age electric fencing that's so portable, a thread, a, literally a thread that's invisible from 20 feet away, can contain and control a herd of 5,000 cows. So we can actually, we can actually, with a, a steering wheel, it's like having a steering wheel, an accelerator, and a brake on a herd of pruners, of four wheel drive sauerkraut vat pruners moving across the landscape as as precisely and perfectly as the landscape manager at a golf course moves a zero turn over the landscape that has not been possible in human history we're living in a time when that precision is possible um and, can, and you're saying and can be put to our advantage in the sense yeah. of letting an herbivore Roam in a particular pattern in order to help manage yeah. and restore the grasses, which is what the bison. I mean, when they would break exactly. up the soil with their hooves, there you didn't have the runoff, you didn't have the loss, and all the other animals under them thrive. You know, when you get rid of these top dog predators, as they're called, or apex guardians, the whole ecosystems come apart. So, um, but I want to come back to some other things you wrote because there's so many areas that I'd like to touch on, and one of them that I have spent 
over, I guess, 15 years talking about, and I'm on the same side of the fence as you are, obviously, which is my opposition to GMOs and other transgenics. Talk to us about your own perspective and why this introduction into our food chain of this kind of industry and technology bodes so poorly for the future. Yeah, well, the, the industry that says, well, GMOs are just an accelerated, an accelerated uh, selection process like hybridization or just good seed stock management where you're, you're selecting the best stock all the time, it's not at all. Uh, the GMOs require a violent, a violent uh, in, interaction, uh, a, a cannon essentially, into the actual DNA helix molecule and it's at that level and and the truth is that nature has a lot of barriers to make sure that this kind of genetic uh, manipulation can't happen uh, like in the book I say you know in, in nature there's only there's the, the horse and the donkey and they can mate and have offspring it's called a mule but the interesting thing about a mule is that it's sterile. It's almost like God says, okay, mm-hmm. do this, but that's as far as you can go. Exactly. You're not going to mate a corn plant to a salmon, to a pig, to a tomato. Uh, as, as I say, you know, if, if, the, if the sexual plumbing doesn't match up, it's probably, uh, there's probably something wrong with it. And, and so we, we in, in our, in our uh, completely uh, ignorant minds, um, finite minds, we wander into the awesomeness and the mystery of this cosmos like a bunch of swashbuckling conquistadors mm-hmm. and, 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 and beat around, and the next thing you know, uh, we've got, we've got um, look at the hockey sticks of autism, the hockey sticks of, of uh, diseases, gluten intolerance. I mean, when I was a child, there were, when there was a church potluck or something at school and kids brought food, nobody asked about peanuts. Right. The, the, the term food allergy didn't even exist. Right. But we've had an absolute exponential proliferation of, of, of a vocabulary uh, that, that didn't even exist just, you know, 30 years ago. And any thinking person would have to say, well, well, why? Why this unprecedented brand-new vocabulary that did not get invented until the last 30 years? Well, because other things were invented at the same time. And, and, there's, a, you know, and there's, a, there's a, a direct result here. And so um, one of my problems with GMOs, of course, I, I mean, I, I believe that they actually have problems. I can tell you that around here, uh, dairy farmers, um, you know, they don't want to grow corn silage from GMOs to feed their dairy cows because they're concerned about abortion. Right. Um, you know, that, that link is so well known that even conventional farmers talk about it. Uh, and so there, there's a tremendous amount of, of, um, of unspoken um, externalities going on with GMOs. But one of the worst is the fact that this this promiscuous, by definition, I mean these, they, they've got a you know breed right to germinate. So so these promiscuous life forms do not respect boundaries. 
I mean, even in aerial pesticide spraying, conscientious companies, and, and of course I disagree with that, but conscientious companies are extremely careful to, to stay within fence lines, to spray on mornings that, it, that there's no wind, uh, you know, very concerned about trespass and things like that. But with this, with this GMO technology, it's inherently promiscuous, inherently does not respect property lines. And so, you know, historically, if, you're, if your animal or plant, uh, if, if, you're, you know, if your bull um, came onto my property and tromped my flower bed, uh, I could call the district attorney down at the, at the you know, uh, county office and say, hey, you know, this neighbor has a bull trampling my flower bed. And, and you could be taken into court and required to pay damages to me for property infringement. What we have today is Monsanto can send bulls, in this case, you know, other beings, life forms that I don't want, onto my farm. Not only are they not liable, but the courts have ruled I have to pay them yeah. for the privilege of their bull trampling my flower bed. Yeah, it's pretty extraordinary. I used to call that corporatized terrorism. It really yeah. is. I mean, yeah. it's really modern-day bootlegging terrorism. When, when you talk about it, though, we have to take a break. I thought one of the beautiful things you made so clear for just an average reader is that it's not even just the where it begins. It's where it doesn't end, as you're starting to tell us, because the insects that become impervious, uh, like in the soybean, the Roundup soybean, um, that has you inserted into it makings like Agent Orange, so devastating that it kills people. And then the insects that become impervious go on to breed, and then you have a new insect that never existed and never would have existed had it not been for the patent of the genetic engineering. And and so it's getting to the point where not only do we know that children who have eaten it and test um, humans and animals, others who eat these foods get sick when it's actually controlled. And as you pointed out with animal abortions, it's well known. And that animals, when given a choice, if you put out GMO grain and regular grain, they will never choose the GMO grain. Um, but that these monopolies, these cartels, I mean, it's really fascism. I hate to say it, but it is when the central government supports privatized corporations, um, that's really what's running the direction of the food industry. And that's, I think, for some of us, just the biggest scary. You know, that's just the biggie. For me, that's the biggest scary, because it means that the seed that once any farmer anywhere in the world could plant, they can no longer plant their own seed because they don't have it, and then they can't collect their seed for the following year. And people forget that if a cartel owns the seed, folks, nobody can plant nothing nowhere. Well, that's not great English, but you get the point. We'll be right back. Joe Salatin is our guest. I really encourage you to go to his website. It's the Salatin Semester, S-A-L-A-T-I-N semester.com and www.polyfacefarms.com. And of course, our good friends at acresusa.com. Hello, this is Don Weaver, co-author with John Hemaker of The Survival of Civilization, free at soilandhealth.org, and Regenerate the Earth, available from vibranthealthandwealth.com. Thanks for helping and for listening to Zoe Hieronymus at 21st Century Radio. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio. Don't forget, all of our guest shows are archived online for free at www.2121 century 
radio.com. And, of course, you can download them and listen to them at any time and share them with everybody. You know, Joel, one of the things um, that you speak to so eloquently about and have demonstrated works in your two-point-some million-dollar business that I say because people think, oh, my God, he got to have loans. He must be indebted to the bank, none of which is true, that you have done this um, with a real appreciation of how to use the grazing herbivores, then how to move in the chickens, how basically the old peasant farm worked. And one of the things that I think um, Pollen has said to have been so excited by and what attracted him to you and why you were so featured in his work, The Omnivore's Dilemma, was that you refused to send food to locations not within a four-hour drive of your farm, meaning if it was outside your local food shed. So let's use some of our remaining time to talk about how it is that everybody in our listening audience really can help be a part of the positive change in our food distribution, food growing, and food quality reality. Yeah, it's a great question, one of the most common I get. I, I, I've, uh, I've condensed it to three, three basic points. Uh, people ask, well, what can I do? So point number one is get in your kitchen. Much of the, you know, much of the uh, adulteration of our food system occurs in, in processing. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, as Pollen says, shop the, shop the outside of the supermarket, better yet, uh, get you know get raw unprocessed material from your local farmer, and and use your kitchen to preserve, package, prepare, uh, you know foods. This is not again going backwards. You know, Grandma would have given her eye teeth for the kind of uh, you know timed bake and and um, you know Cuisinarts and uh, goodness, uh, a hot and cold running water on demand. Uh, indoor plumbing, you know, we have amazing technology today in our kitchen. So when I say get in your kitchen, it doesn't mean washboard, soup, skirts, you know, barefoot, pregnant, standing in the kitchen all day. Um, so, 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 so get in your kitchen. That, that's, that's number one. That, that gets you touching, feeling, tasting, seeing food. Not right, just, start making not, food yeah, not, rather than just buying right. prepared foods. Yeah, exactly. Not, not, just, not just having a kitchen that only has a pair of nippers to to zip through the plastic on the microwavable package. Um, number two is do something yourself. Uh, that can be as simple as a vermicomposting kit under your kitchen uh, to, you know, uh, to pots and even vertical, you know, there are these wonderful vertical gardens that yeah. you can hang on your patio, hang outside a southern window, uh, put a solarium on your house to grow winter mescaline mix and, and have passive solar coming into your house. Uh, throw out the gerbil, the cat, the dog, and put in two chickens, you know, and they'll eat your kitchen scraps and give you two eggs a day and be a great uh, source of inspiration for your teenagers because chickens wake up early in the morning, they're happy all day turning trash into treasure, and they go to bed at the first uh, darkening of the evening. So they're a perfect role model for teenagers. Um, so, so, so do something yourself just to, just, to, just to appreciate the awesome and the mystery of, of life. And then the third thing, is to take your recreational entertainment budget for one year, and I've met people that have done this. It's amazing. Uh, whatever you're going to spend recreating and entertaining for the year, take that time and money budget and spend it finding your food treasures in your community. These are farms. There's an entire uh, what subculture mm-hmm. of integrity, regenerative um, uh, farms 
in every community now. Yes, there are. It's wonderful to watch this next generation. The boomers' children, as I say, yes. you know, have yes. come of age. They're in their early 30s and mid-30s. Yes. It's fantastic. Yeah, it is. Some of them are, are very small, but I will tell you, many of them are just are just five, six, seven uh, customers away from a tipping point where they can lose their, uh, where they can quit their town commute and actually come back to the farm full time. Mm-hmm. And for you to be able in, to enable these 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 visionary dreaming um, part timers to be able to devote full attention, I mean. You become like a patron saint. Yeah, even if it's just you know joining a local CSA and yeah. making sure you support a farmers yeah. to be able to plant the food you're going to eat. You know, we have a new um, a butcher, John Brown's Butchery here in my county, where they get their meat from a farm and the whole animal is brought to them, and they use the whole animal. Of course, they're pasture fed, and um, I think that's what people say. If you're not a vegetarian and you want to eat meat, spend the money to get grass fed meat. Yes, that's right. So, you know, when I'm talking about, you know, know your local farmer, what I mean is, you know, go visit farms and you will quickly gain a skill set of being able to ter- determine who's the charlatan and who's the real deal. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot so, of them have pick your own, so you can actually go on the farms and get some produce. Absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. But but the, the, the I, I feel the push every time I do this, I feel the pushback through. You know, I don't have the time, yeah. I don't have the whatever. And, and and that's why I say, look, take your take your budget of entertainment and recreation for the year, and put one year, and you won't ever have to do it again because mm-hmm. then you'll have your entire network of support groups. And but, when you also say that the wonderful farmers markets that we have in our urban communities are farmers who aren't growing most of the time in the cities, they're coming into the cities with their produce. You can also learn what's so close to our cities. Sure, sure, and and. Uh, the truth is that a lot of people want something different to happen. Well, something different is not going to happen until people act differently. Right. Where, where we are today in our food culture, our health culture, our economic culture, where we are is the, is the manifestation of billions and billions of decisions that people have made. And where we will be in 20 years, Will also be a manifestation of what people of the decisions people make between now and then, and the and the decision to uh, to actually make a connection with your ecological umbilical. That those decisions are going to create the world that your children will inherit, and that's one of the reasons why here at Polyface on our on our little bag, our little uh, slogan is you know healing the planet, healing the land one bite at a time, because because that's. The, the land is actually going to look like the bites of food that you eat. That, over time, that's what's going to happen. When you look at both the challenges we face and the opportunities of really rethinking, I mean, to me, it's, it's such an extraordinary time in that way that, you know, we can go one direction and it's not going to turn out so well, and we can go another direction and it's really going to be good. Um, for those that sit on the fence, Joel, who say, you know, like I'm, I'm not. I always hear when I say to people, you really must eat organic if you do nothing else. Particularly people who juice and they're juicing these chemicalized pesticide food products, getting more chemicals and pesticides into their body by juicing than if they were just eating foods. And so I always tell them organic. Well, I can't afford it. That's what they say. Well, 
Uh, my first question when anybody says that is I grab them by the hand and say, okay, take me to your house. We're going to go to your house right now, and I'm sure here's what we're not going to find. We're not going to find Starbucks coffee cups. We're not going to find uh, takeout DiGiorno's frozen pizza. That's very, very expensive. We're not going to find uh, lottery tickets. We're not going to find soda, alcohol, golf clubs, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, widescreen flat TVs. Um, right, expensive know, shoes, expensive clothes, yeah, et cetera, designer, et cetera. Uh, right. uh, designer jeans with holes already in the knees. Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's, and and, and the, the, tru- the truth is, the truth is that if you really want something, yeah. you, you have to prioritize to get it. And, uh, I mean, the, our, I, and I realize there are certainly people financially where – what we're talking about is a stretch, and, and I absolutely, you know, we, we need to appreciate that. But, but so often the conversation gets derailed into that without confronting the soccer mom who has no problem at all taking her six-year-old uh, uh, three hours in a traveling soccer program um, and then says, well, I can't spend an extra 30 cents on really uh, uh, pastured eggs that will really uh, mm-hmm. feed me, or, or I, I can't, you know, I'm not willing to spend an extra $2,000 a year feeding my family the highest quality stuff. Uh, I mean, we, we, we generally, as a society, we wouldn't think about putting uh, fuel as impure as the food we put in our bodies. We wouldn't begin to think of putting that kind of impure fuel in our Honda, our SUV, our automobile, yeah. but we have no problem at all putting completely garbage-tainted fuel into our own bodies. Mm-hmm. It's a, you know, it's it's a it's it's a funny stretch. It, well, you know, we're we're almost out of time, and I just want to tell you that you know you've done so much good for so many thousands and thousands, if not millions, of people in the long run who have watched you as a um, example of what is possible. It's not like you're speaking theory. You're speaking lived proof. Um, and that's not something you always find in the world. So I, I want to thank you and your family and your ancestors <laughs> and your yep. children who continue for doing this and, um, and to close with what you recommend, which is all of this is about our own responsibility not just for ourselves, but for our land and our future. And so I want to encourage our audience to follow up with you. Go to the salatinsemester.com. That's www.salatin, S-A-L-A-T-I-N, semester.com. www.polyfacefarms.com, acresusa.com. And folks, This Ain't Normal by Joel Salatin. 21st Century Radio is produced by Hieronymus and Company. Our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Cortner. I'm Dr. Zohara Hieronymus, and remember, we do need more love in the world.